Well, good evening. Good to see everybody tonight. Always good to see you on Wednesday nights. I always enjoy our time together of studying God's Word and, and uh, going through the Gospel of John, the portrait of Jesus. And we reached uh, finally chapter 19. And we will wrap up next week with chapters 20 and 21, both of those on the resurrection. And tonight is on the uh, Jesus trials and crucifixion. So glad that you're here. Good to see all of you and those joining by live stream. Uh, glad to have you as well from literally all of the United States. And we're glad that you joined us to study God's Word tonight as well. Let's pray together and we'll get started. Father, thank you tonight for your Word. God, is a, it's such a joy and a privilege to come together and to read your Word, study it, Look at everything that, that John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote down. And Lord, just uh, I pray that you'll teach us, show us more about our Savior, help us to love Him even greater, more and more as we study more and more. And Father, may your presence be here tonight. Wherever people are joining us online, I pray your presence to be there as well. And may the Holy Spirit be our teacher. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, we will be wrapping up, John, two weeks, actually one week from tonight, uh, February 2nd, and then two weeks from tonight, we begin uh, looking at the book of Revelation, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, every Wednesday night at 6.15, and I believe that you're going to enjoy that. But it, it really is good, it has been good to study John, dive in to see what all is there, and tonight we get to, get to um, or made it to chapter 19. Jesus has been arrested uh, the trials have begun, and tonight, John records for us in, in chapter 19, his trials concluding, and then the crucifixion. John devotes more time to the trials of Jesus than any other gospel writer. Other gospel writers say he went before Caiaphas, he went before Annas, he went before Herod, uh, Pilate, but John is the one that gives us more details concerning what they said. In fact, uh, you get the feeling with John before his trials, Jesus is not really being interrogated. It's really an interview. And so more than an interrogation, it's like the leader is trying to figure out Pilate tonight, who is this guy? And, and rather than interrogating him like a criminal, they're really interviewing him to try to find out who he is and what he was about. And so we're going to see that tonight. Chapter 19, hope you have your Bibles with your device, and we'll be in the ESV. So let's begin, first of all, verses 1 through 16, which most of this material in verses 1 through 16, unique to John. The other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, do not include this. And so we're reading tonight what is a pretty well, uh, for the most part, unique to John. Jesus is delivered to be crucified, letter A on your outline, Verses 1 through 16. So let's read it together. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now we'll stop there for a moment. You know what the Roman floggings are. I've described those to you. And you may be wondering, wait a minute. If the flogging was so severe early in his trials, how did he even survive? Because you remember the sermon series I went through on the crucifixion of Jesus, how severe those Roman beatings were. How did he even survive to finish out the trials and even answer? Because you're about half dead by the time you finish the floggings. But there were three specific floggings that the Romans had. One of them 
It was a very light flogging. It wasn't with all of the sharp metal and bones and the leather straps. It was more just along with whips. That was called a light flogging, and that was for a crime such as commentators say hooligans. So if you're doing something mischievous and you need a light sentence, that's the flogging you would get. The second one was called the medium flogging, and that was the one that was a little more severe for people who had committed worse crimes. Not just petty crimes, but worse crimes. And then the third flogging was the most severe. That's the one Jesus received right before he went to the cross. That's the one that many of them did not even survive the flogging. So most theologians feel like in verse 1 when it says, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, most likely it was either the first or the medium flogging. And then later, after he is sentenced, he receives the most severe flogging. So there were three different kinds of flogging that the Romans had. Verse 2, And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. Now, back in biblical days, emperors and, and leaders would plate a crown of date palm tree thorns. And those of you who've been to Israel with us, date palm trees everywhere. You remember seeing these everywhere we go. And they have on the branches some very strong, sturdy, long thorns. I mean, you run into one of those, you feel it. So emperors or kings would take these, these thorns and they would plate a crown of them. And they would place it on their own head, not with the thorns in, but with the thorns out. Because as it sat on their head, it, the thorns out looked like it radiated glory. And so the kings, the emperors, Caesar would love to wear these crown of thorns plated on top of his head. In fact, there have been uncovered in archaeological evidence, uncovered coins with, an, with, a, with Caesar's inscription with a crown of thorns on. Uh, and so with the thorns out denoting that he was the glory he was radiating and crown of thorns. Well, with Jesus, they plated the same crowns, but they stuck the thorns in just as a means of derision, of showing that there is no glory to him, but a mock king. So they put on the crown of thorns rather than the thorns going out, they went in. And also put a purple robe on him. Why purple? Royalty, exactly right. Because purple was, was expensive. In order to make a garment that was purple, usually only kings wore them, a purple garment, the purple dye came from a, a, a secretion of mollusks in the ocean. So you had to import the mollusks. You had to import everything about it, make the, the dye from the secretions of a mollusk, which then would turn it purple. So only royalty or kings wore purple. In fact, what's really interesting, just as a side note, earlier in 2021, this time, about this time a year ago, archaeological discoveries were made in Timnah, which is southern Israel, where they found purple garments. They, th they think they did carbon dating on them. They believe they went all the way back to the time of David and Solomon, that they wore those purple robes as the kings of Israel, and that they were buried in Timnah. And so uh, it, it's interesting that it was a purple robe denoting royalty. So 
all of this was a mock homage that Jesus is a king. So they put, put crown of thorns, put a purple robe on him. They came up, verse 3, to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands, beat him. Pilate went out again, verse 4, and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Verse 5, so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So picture this. Jesus is with Pilate in an inner room. The crowd is in a frenzy out there, waiting, wanting Jesus to be killed. And so Pilate condemns him, flogs him, and even though he didn't find anything wrong with him, crown of thorns, purple robe. And so now, like a coronation ceremony, gets their attention, walks out onto a ledge, and says, I am presenting to you, Jews, your king. And there he is with a purple robe on and the crown of thorns on his head, blood obviously coming down from the thorns already, beaten already, obviously being beaten. And in a mocking way, here is your king. I wonder what was going through the minds of the disciples. Remember, they thought he's the Messiah. And since they thought he was the Messiah, they thought he would be a military leader. And he would reign and not lose, he would win. And they're probably looking, thinking, oh my goodness, this is embarrassing. Look at him. The man that everybody feared is, is being mocked. And as he walked out, there was probably shrieks of horror and guffaws of laughs. And they're thinking, maybe... Maybe we were wrong. Maybe he's not the Messiah. So I wonder what they were thinking at this point. What's interesting, whenever we go to Israel now to visit, there is a very narrow street that winds her way through Jerusalem. And there is an archway over it. And on the archway are the words in Latin, echo homo. Echo homo means, behold the man. And that is the traditional spot that Pilate walked out and presented him to the people. Now, there is an archway over the street now, most likely that was not there in Pilate's day. An emperor named Hadrian, back in, or later on, 135 A.D., built a plaza out at the same location, and they called it the Echo Homo because Pilate says, Behold the man, and that's what it meant in Latin. But we still see the location as to where this happened. You can just picture it. Jesus, uh, with Pilate, walking out onto the ledge, and all the people in the street below shouting. Look what they shouted, verse 6. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. There's one theory that says that Pilate was hoping by putting Jesus in a robe and the crown of thorns and walking out there as a beaten figure, he was hoping to elicit sympathy from the Jews of saying, oh, that's one of our own. You've beaten one of our own. Hoping to elicit sympathy so he wouldn't have to kill him because he found no fault in him. But boy, he didn't get sympathy. 
Once they saw the blood of Jesus trickling down, face beaten, walking out on the plaza, they were like sharks in a frenzy. They wanted him dead. And they shouted, crucify! And Pilate said, take him yourself and crucify him. I don't want to have anything to do with him. Verse 7, the Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. So with Jews, if you claim to be God or the son of God, that's blasphemy. And according to Jewish law, that's worthy of death. But they couldn't put anybody to death because they're under Roman law. So the Romans had to put them to death. So they're trying to get Pilate to do it for them. So they tell Pilate, we have this law that we, we can't kill him because he has made himself to be, key phrase for Pilate, the son of God. And whenever they said that, Pilate became afraid. Look at verse 8. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Why? What scared him? What scared him was whenever Pilate thought that there was, well, a lot of the Roman leaders thought that people who had special powers or people who were gifted in some way, that they were what were called demigods. They were a combination of a Greek god and a human having a sexual relationship, and they were the offspring. So Pilate did not want to offend one of the gods if Jesus happened to be a demigod. Because after all, reports were Mary was overcome with the Holy Spirit and it fed right into what they believed anyway. And so Pilate is halfway thinking Jesus is a demigod and if I put him to death, I'm going to incur the wrath of the gods. So he was halfway afraid of Jesus anyway. And then when they said, he claims to be the son of God, Pilate went, oh no, he is a demigod. I wonder who his daddy was. Because there was a common belief in this day that Hercules had a had relationship with a woman, a human, and what resulted was a powerful superhuman man. And so Pilate's wondering, is Jesus a demigod? So listen to what he asked in verse 9. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? Now, now he's not talking Nazareth. He's not talking a physical town. He's talking about which God is your father? Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So whenever Jesus was silent, it made him more uneasy. And it made him a little more afraid. Like, he's not answering me. He may be Hercules' kid. He may be one of the gods' kid, son, and, and I don't want to offend him. And so when he didn't answer, it made him even more nervous. You think Jesus knew this? Yeah. Verse 10. 
So Pilate said to him, he got angry. Will you not speak to me? And the word me there is in the emphatic position. Do you not know I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? He's angry because Jesus wouldn't answer. And Jesus answered, verse 11, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Isn't it ironic? Here is, here is a man given authority by Caesar, and he is judging the one to whom the Father has given the authority to judge the world. And one day, Pilate stood before Jesus in judgment when he died. Kind of ironic, isn't it? Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Uh-oh. Hold on a second. They have squeezed Pilate into a box, the Jews have. He now has a dilemma. They have said, you're not Caesar's friend. If you let a king, someone who claims to be a king go, you are just saying, then I don't care if Caesar's kingdom's taken or not. Well, he couldn't do that because his boss was Caesar. And he didn't want to crucify Jesus because it would cause an uproar among the Jews. And his only job, Pilate's only job was, given to him by Caesar, his only job was, you make sure the Jews don't revolt and they stay happy. It's his only job. So he's trying to keep them happy. But he's in a box because now he's about to release a man who claims to be a king who could overthrow Caesar. Not only that, Pilate was not a very competent leader. He did not get his lofty position because he was good. He got it because he married Caesar's granddaughter. And as a favor to the granddaughter, he appointed Pilate as the prefect of Galilee. Not because Pilate was very capable. He wasn't. It's kind of a, a rube. And so now he's always thinking, I want to prove myself to Caesar. I want to prove myself that I can do this. And all the way other hist secular historians all talk about Pilate. He's always trying to prove himself to Caesar. And so, you don't think the Jews knew that? They came strong when they said, you're no friend of Caesar. You're not even competent. And oh, those are fighting words of Pilate. Verse 13, so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Lithostrotos, or the stone pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, those of you who have been with us, one of our most powerful stops on our trip is going to see the stone pavement. It's mentioned here in John. It's called the Lithostrotos, in Greek, lithos meaning stone, and strotos literally meaning walkway or pavement. And so there was a stone-paved area that it's, today it's underneath the Sisters of Zion Convent. 
So you pay the Sisters of Zion a fee and you can go down underneath and you can see it. Back then, it was in the open air because Gabbatha and Aramaic meant open space. So Pilate left his palace, went down, put down his bima, the judgment seat, in an open air space. And there pronounced Jesus to be theirs. Whenever we're there and we walk along the lithostrotos today, it's about an area about 3,000 square feet. We pay the, 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 an entra, entrance fee to the Sisters of Zion. We walk downstairs and we go underneath all the way down. And you see the stone pavement or a stone road that goes all the way back to the first century. In fact, one of the places in Israel that you know for absolute certain, 100%, you can put your feet where Jesus was. Underneath that, on the lithostrotos. So, as we go down there, it's interesting because one of the stones has markings carved into it. It looks like tic-tac-toe. It's a four square. And you see little pictures. That was the place the soldiers played their games. They would get bored. They would play games in the stone pavement. They carved images into it. And they would play different games as different ones came about to be crucified made a game out of it. They were bored. They just had to watch the criminal. He's not going anywhere. He's condemned. And they would be bored and they would play the game. So it's still there today, the markings. And then we see in a moment where the soldiers played the game of dividing up Jesus' garments and gambling for them. The game was a part of that. You can still see it today. So it says then in verse 15, or rather verse 14. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. Why didn't John tell us that? Because that meant the sacrificial lamb was getting ready to be sacrificed. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king! In verse 15, they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Whoa. Hold on a second. The Jews hated the Romans. And the reason they hated them was because the Jews worshipped one God and they didn't say, Hail Caesar. Because that would be worshipping two gods. And now they blaspheme their own God by saying, We have no king but Caesar. That's blasphemy. What did they accuse Jesus of? Blasphemy. Now they're committing it. So he delivered him over to be crucified. Let's go to letter B, verses 17 to 27, the crucifixion. Interesting that John does not mention Simon of Cyrene carrying the cross of Christ. He's the only four of the gospel writers that does not mention it. So they took Jesus and went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. You remember when I talked about the crucifixion, I did a six-week sermon series on it, so I won't go through a lot of that tonight. We don't have time to go through all of it. But you remember one of the things I said was that whenever they carried crosses, they didn't carry the entire cross, only the cross beam, which is called the patibulum. The, the upright part would be already be at this crucifixion site. So Jesus is bearing his own cross, bearing his own patibulum, is what it says. And they went out to a place of a skull in Aramaic called Golgotha. Verse 18. There they crucified him 
and with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. That is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 12. I believe why John mentioned it. But what's interesting about the crucifixion is, as you know, crucifixion was a cruel and unusual punishment. It was painful. It was humiliating. It was torture. It, it was long. It lasted sometime days. You were naked, stripped. You had no clothes on whatsoever. You were in the hot sun for days Enduring muscle spasms, pushing your body weight up, try to get a breath. Your joints would be pulled out of socket, which would be, but by the way, that was prophesied in Psalms. Uh, asphyxiation would happen. And the, the Romans did this to discourage rebellion against Rome. The people, if you, once you saw a crucifixion, you think, I don't want to have, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be an obedient Roman citizen. I'm not going to do anything wrong because it was a deterrent to crime. The Romans, by the way, did not invent crucifixion. They just perfected it. The Persians invented it. If you go all the way back to the Old Testament, when, when the Israelites were under the control of the Persians in Daniel, they invented it. But the Romans invented it to an art where it was more torturous than anyone else had ever crucified someone before. Now, here's what I find interesting. Out of all four gospel writers, none of them talk about how horrible a crucifixion was. Did you notice that? It just said, and they crucified him. And goes on. Why? Why don't any of the gospel writers tell us we have to read secular historians to find out how horrible a crucifixion was? Why did, why did no gospel writer tell us? Because their main point was not the great suffering he went through, but the fact that he died for us. Every gospel writer's main point was one thing, he died for you. Not necessarily the great suffering that went on, but the fact that he died for us. So John just says, there they crucified him between two others. Verse 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on a cross. And it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. Notice it says it wasn't in the city. It was near the city. That's important because today there's a debate on where was the crucifixion site. Roman Catholics say it's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre where it sits. Protestants say pretty well Gordon's Calvary. Gordon's Calvary is outside the city. The other one was inside the city. It was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and in Greek. That's because people passed by Jerusalem. They would come from all over the Roman Empire. They spoke different languages. And, and they wanted it to appear in every language you could understand the charge that he had. This is the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, or rather they said, verse 21. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said I'm the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. The only time you really see him standing up to the crowd. Verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his 
garments, plural, not singular, not garment, garments, plural, and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. Now, whenever the Romans crucified somebody, they usually took five soldiers, four what was called legionnaires, common soldier, and one centurion who was the boss. He was over them. He was the head. So there would have been five Roman soldiers at the cross with Jesus. And the Bible said that they took his garments, plural, and divided them. So it wasn't, so it means they stripped him naked. They took his belt and his robe and his outer garment and his inner garment and his tunic and his sandals and everything he had. And for every stitch of clothes he had, they divided them among themselves. But for one of them, the longest one, the outer garment, they didn't want to tear it. They wanted to come in pieces because each had one item. And now that they're going to get the, whoever's going to get the fifth one. And so they cast lots because verse says, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And that fulfilled the Old Testament. This was to fulfill Scripture, Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. It says, they divided my garments among them for my clothing. They cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Now look at verse 25, something really interesting. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, or rather, and his mother's sister, too. Mary, the wife of Clopas, three. And Mary Magdalene, four. Four women standing there. John is specific to tell us who they were. And that they were standing there. It was not uncommon during a crucifixion for a small crowd of family or friends to gather while the condemned was being crucified. It was common. But notice who the women are. Three Marys and Mary, Jesus' mother's sister. Okay? That's all John tells us. But Mark and Matthew give us more insight. Mark tells us the Mary's sister was named Salome. And Matthew tells us Mary's sister named Salome is... Zebedee's wife. Now hold on a second. Are you following it? Zebedee's wife. Who are Zebedee's kids? John. That wrote this. Why didn't he just say, and my mom was there? He didn't. His mother was there. So if Jesus' mother, if, his, if, if Mary's sister was Salome, which was John's mother, that meant Jesus and John the gospel writer were first cousins, right? And that John did not mention it was my mom. He says at the cross were Mary, Mary's sister. Mary Magdalene and Mary the wife of Clopas. 
It's interesting, John never speaks of a family member as his family member. And he never speaks of himself in the gospel as me. He always says the other disciple. Talk about himself. Or the disciple whom Jesus loved. Talk about himself. So it's fascinating that, that there's this connection that he's talking about his mother, but he calls her, oh, that's, yeah, that's Jesus' mother's sister. When Jesus saw his mother, verse 26, and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. By the way, that was a term of respect and dignity. He was being kind to her. I call, you call somebody woman today, and it's not real flattering. But it was, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. He didn't say, Jesus said this to me and I took Mary in. He's writing as if it's somebody else. Interesting, isn't it? Now, one of the reasons Jesus would have John take care of Mary is because he was a relative. He was Mary's nephew. Joseph most likely has died by now. Most theologians think he died whenever Jesus was a boy because you never hear about him. And in patriarchal society, you would have heard about him. He's never mentioned after the, after the 12-year-old incident in the temple. And so probably Joseph died she has no one to take care of her. His brothers aren't believers yet. They're not until after the resurrection. And so he commits his mother to John and said, John, take care of her. She's now your mother. She's not your aunt. She's your mother. And the Bible says, and from that hour, the disciple, John himself, took her to his own home. Tradition tells us they moved to Ephesus. John lived to be an old man. He was the only disciple of all 12 that lived to an old age. The others are crucified or, or killed early or beheaded early. John lived to be an older man. Most theologians think because he could take care of Mary. That was a task God gave him, Jesus gave him. And so he fulfilled it. And so they lived in Ephesus until an old age. What most Bible scholars believe. Now, Roman Catholics do not like this passage. You know why? It makes Mary look weak. It makes her look like she needs somebody to take care of her. And in the eyes of Roman Catholics, she's venerated. She wouldn't need anybody to take care of her, right? So they're a little embarrassed by this passage. But it's scriptural. Go to letter C in your outline, the death of Jesus. Verses 28 to 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, To Telestai, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Let me mention a couple of things. One is, your crucifixion caused extreme thirst. All of your body fluids would drain out. Very hot over in Israel, the sun beating down, 115, 20 degrees some days. 
All of your moisture would be gone. Your tongue would stick to the roof of your mouth. It would prophesied in Psalms that the Messiah's tongue would stick to the roof of his mouth. That's exactly what happened. And Jesus said, I'm thirsty. Isn't it ironic the water of life that he told the woman at the well he was? He's thirsty. I'm thirsty. So there was a jar of sour wine. He, they put it up to his mouth. He took, now it says earlier he didn't take it. That was earlier in crucifixion. He does now because he wanted the moisture to be able to speak another word. And that word's important. So they took the sour wine. They put it on a hyssop branch and put it up to his mouth. Why does John tell us a hyssop branch? Because the sacrificial lamb, when it was killed at Passover, they would take a hyssop branch and dip the blood of the lamb and sprinkle you and you were clean. And John, all the way through, is telling us he is the sacrificial lamb. They took a hyssop branch and put it up to his mouth, moistened his mouth just enough for him to say, to tell us die, which means it is finished. In the Greek, it's in the perfect tense. Perfect tense means nothing else follows and nothing else needs to follow because what has been said is complete. Nothing needs to follow. His sacrifice is complete. We don't need anything else but the sacrificial blood of Christ. To tell us die, it is finished. It was a word, to Telestai was, very common in the commercial market in, in around Jerusalem. Everybody would know what it meant. It meant paid in full. In fact, there have been archaeological discoveries of papyri receipts. People would receive a receipt after they paid off a debt that said, to Telestai written across it. Paid in full. Isn't it interesting that Jesus chose... A term that meant paid in full in a commercial setting, and he used the perfect tense to say, It is finished, your debt is paid in full, you need nothing else. Wow, that's powerful. And then he bowed his head. Usually, a crucifixion, the head, you didn't bow your head, your head flopped over, you had no control of it. It didn't say his head flopped over. It says he bowed it. He's still in full control. All the way through his death, he's in full control. Bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Here's what's interesting. It didn't say he died. It says he gave his spirit back. Gave up his spirit, three words in English, four words in English, one Greek word, paradokian. Paradokian means to give somebody something. If I walk up to you and I give you an item and you take it, I have full control of it until I give it to you. So Jesus gave his spirit back to the Father. They didn't take it. They didn't kill him. He gave it willingly. He said he would so it's interesting the wording John chooses to say. He didn't say, and they killed him. Or he didn't say, and he died. He says, and he gave his spirit back. Let's go to that letter D on your, outside, on your outline. Jesus' side is pierced, 31 to 37. 
Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. What would happen in the crucifixion, sometimes they would last for days. As long as you could push your legs up and get a breath, you could live. And so some of them did it for days. Jesus was, uh, was the day before the preparation for the April the Sabbath. They didn't want a dead body hanging up there on the Sabbath because the Jews felt like it would defile the land. So they would ask the Romans to go by, and everyone who was still grasping for breath just before the Sabbath, they would take a huge iron mallet and boom, just smash both legs, shatter them. Not just break a bone, they shattered them. The reason we know that, there have been archaeological discoveries of people who were crucified, legs shattered, and we know that they were that they were killed by the Roman soldiers. So it would hasten their death so they'd die immediately. Imagine how frightening that would be if you were still alive. So they came up to Jesus, uh, and they, that's why he died so quickly. So the soldiers came, broke the legs of the first and of the other, verse 32, who had been crucified. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Verse 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. First of all, before I get to the blood and water right quick, they didn't break Jesus' legs because there would be prophesied not a bone in his body would be broken. So that it was fulfilled prophecy. So look at verse 34, though. But one of the soldiers came up, pierced his side with a spear, and at once came out blood and water. Some people say, well, that was just, just something physiological that happened. Spear went under the chest cavity, it pierced the heart, so the blood came out, it pierced the pericardial sac where there would be fluid, and water ran out. Nothing more than that. And maybe so. Others say, well, it was the water and the blood mixed together. It's baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's both ordinances God gave to the church. Maybe. Nothing in that tells us that. But I believe here's the reason I think that John recorded it. Remember when John wrote, last, late of the gospel writers? By the time John wrote, there were two heresies going around the church that a lot of church members believed, but they were false. One of them was called Gnosticism, and one of them was called Doceticism. And a lot of believers believed it. And what those theories said was that Jesus really wasn't a man. He just appeared to be a man. But he really wasn't human. He was a spirit. No, it wasn't human at all. He's a spirit. And the other one, Gnosticism, said he didn't really die. He just, he didn't, he never really died. He just passed out on the cross. So John tells us, Soldier came up and pierced his side and blood came out and water came out to refute the fact that he really wasn't a man. Of course he was a man and that he didn't really die. Of course he died. By the way, Muslims don't believe, they, they still believe to this day that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Why? Because Muhammad later was influenced by the Docetics. The only thing he knew about Jesus, Jesus was from Doceticism which taught he wasn't real and he didn't really die. So that's why Muslims still believe it. So that's why I believe he tells us 
what happened. Verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. He knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. Verse 36. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. And again another scripture. They will look on him whom they have pierced. Now we'll look at the last section. We have a couple of minutes to see verses 38 to 42. Jesus is buried. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. Why would Pilate give him permission to bury the body? Maybe because he would give, knew he'd give him an honorable burial. Maybe that's a part of it. Um, we don't know exactly what else, but he, he, gave, he granted the permission to give to, to the burial. Nicodemus also, verse 39, who came, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Their pounds are different than our pounds. It'd be about 65 of our pounds. Myrrh is, a, is part of sandalwood, the most expensive wood that's out there today. Australia exports a lot of it. It's powdered uh, sandalwood mixed with aloes. Why would they put that on a dead body? Because it dries the body out and it doesn't smell as bad once it dries out. So that's why they would put it on a dead body. So they took the body of Jesus, verse 40, and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews Verse 41, now in that place where he was crucified, there was a garden. John's the only gospel writer that tells us that. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of the preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. One last thought, and we'll close at 7 o'clock. Why did John tell us there was a garden there? Maybe to identify which tomb he was at possible. But isn't it ironic that the Bible begins in a garden and now he's buried in a garden. Isn't it ironic that man fell and fell into sin, Adam and Eve, in a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, and now the second Adam is in a garden laid there after having taken the sins of the world. Adam started in a garden Jesus finished it in a garden. Now humanity is brought back right with God. Questions or comments before we close? Next week we will look at the resurrection, chapters 20 and 21. All right, hope you have a good week. Let's pray together and we'll dismiss. Father, thank you for your word. God, there is so much in here, so much that tells us who Jesus was and who Jesus is. And I praise you for a Savior who would take my place, take all the punishment I deserve, and then declare me to telestai, it's finished. My debt is paid in full. Praise God. God, would you guide us the rest of this week in walking with you closely. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. Have a good week. We'll see you Sunday.